Welcome to the fifth episode of the Order Without Design podcast. Today's episode is a little different from the previous ones. It's a conversation between Alain Berteau and our friend Anthony Ling. Anthony is the editor of Caos Planejado, a website devoted to building better cities in Brazil, Anthony's home. Most of Caos Planejado's content is in Portuguese, but this conversation between Anthony and Alain is in English, so we figured it would be fun to share it with you all. In Portuguese, caos planejado means planned chaos, which is very much in the same spirit of the name of Alain's book and this podcast, Order Without Design. I'm really excited to share this with you all because Brazil is a country that has a lot of urban growth that is happening right now, and frankly, a lot of problems that, that it is working through. But it's also a place with a huge amount of opportunity to improve people's lives through cities. So I'm really happy to share this with you all uh, and for Anthony to be the, the host of this podcast uh, because he has a really great perspective having lived in Brazil for most of his life. You can find the original recording of this episode and many more episodes and articles on caosplanejado.com. Alan, uh, uh, I believe you studied architecture in the 1960s. At, in the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in, in Paris. Um, at the time, uh, maybe Le, Le Corbusier was in his 70s, uh, the Athens Charter, maybe yes. the, the birth of modern urban planning is from 1933. So uh, how was modernist urban planning and uh, Le Corbusier seen in Paris, in urban academia uh, at the time that you were, were studying? Well, uh, he was, you know, he became, let's say in the 60s, uh, he became part of the establishment, really, you know, uh, being a, a dissenter in the, uh, in the 20s and the 30s, you know, he was attacking the establishment, you know, the, the, uh, in, in particular, they called the Beaux-Arts. And uh, in the 60s, he was uh, literally a, a god. I mean, he was a guru. Uh, everybody was uh, admiring him, uh, going to his conference. Uh, I to the point that uh, you know in 1963, you know the the study of architecture at the time were very long. It was eight years after you know after uh, you know after admission, so extremely long with no intermediary uh, degree, by the way. And uh, so uh, in 63, I get a little bored by my study at the Beaux-Arts and I decided to take a year off, particularly, I mean, nine months off. And uh, I went to Chandigarh to work there because Chandigarh at the time were being built and it was considered to be the, you know, the, the best type of planning. Uh, you see, so it, it was uh, a little before Brasilia, you know, that in a way, because uh, Chandigarh started earlier. And uh, so I went there uh, by the way, by hitchhiking, you know, from Marseille, uh, which uh, could not be done now, but, uh, you know, crossing uh, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, and uh, Pakistan, and arriving in Chandigarh. And uh, so I worked there with, uh, with uh, the cousin of Corbusier, Pierre Genere, who was uh, were there. And, and suddenly, uh, living in Chandigarh, you know, the diff if I had been a tourist, probably I would have been convinced that this was a fantastic city. Uh, but I was living there. You know, I have colleagues. I had to go to the office every morning. And suddenly I realized how all this concept of the, you know, the self-contained sectors with the, uh, with the commercial area in the center and uh, uh, the, all these things didn't work really. Uh, and some also, not only planning, but uh, the architectural thing, you know, to, to have a, 
what they call bris soleil, you know, to, to cut uh, the sun with slab of concrete, which in fact become like radiators. You know, so, uh, and, and also the dust before the monsoon accumulate on this slab of concrete and, and then the wind blow them up in the, inside the room. I mean, everything was wrong. Uh, when, uh, when with my colleague, we wanted to go to a restaurant, have a drink, or even buy some clothes or something, we will go to a slum area. You know, the, the people were building Chandigarh as build a slum because they could not afford to live in Chandigarh. So they, uh, so for me, this was a, a, an, an awakening, you know, that, uh, that all this theory that when I read Corbusier, I admire, I think this is completely rational. This is, uh, you know, at the time, the utopia was uh, functional. You know, something has to be functional. You know, the, the shape should follow the function and uh, we should not have ornament or anything. The, the function itself is the thing. So that was a utopia. And I realized that uh, it doesn't work, you know, that if you, you cannot plan a, a say commercial area uh, and decide what type of shop will be there and where they will be uh, they uh, they happen when uh, you know you know in a way the the people who open a bakery or a restaurant have more information than the planners so they know where to put it and that's why they happen in the slum because then it's not only that it's cheaper it's because there is a freedom of location so that was my uh, my big thing but uh, and I, I uh, you know, I attended two of uh, Corbusier lecture there, and uh, I found him extremely bitter and negative. By the way, he was a very difficult man. Um, so that that was uh, atmosphere at the time, and and uh, th there was also this thing that you know, if you believe that everything has to be rational, of course you have your own rationality from where you are as a as a Frenchman of the 20th century. And you think that rationality, of course, is universal, and you should impose it on others who are not. Uh, uh, so that's why it came then a bit later with uh, Philip Johnson or Miss Vanderhoof, the international style, you know, which that again is, is rationality. So it's universal. There should not be, uh, you know, a type of architectural planning which is specific to Brazil or China or India. You know, it's uh, because rationality, you know, it's like mathematics, for instance. We are all using the same mathematics. And uh, so the idea that planning will be like mathematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Alain, you mentioned uh, back then uh, Le Corbusier, uh, at least when, when he was uh, beginning, he was, uh, let's say, uh, challenging the... Yes. Uh, challenging the 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 mainstream and uh, what was the mainstream before uh, and 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 how was was these were these ideas seen uh, in paris for example uh, well solly angel uh, mentions about let's say classic urban planning right right uh, commissioners yes. plan in new york Sardas Barcelona expansion, even Hausmann's renovation in Paris. Uh, how were how were these ideas perceived in in when you were a student, and and what were your thoughts back then? Uh, we thought they were uh, they were obsolete, uh, you know, and it's it's all you know. In a way, it's a bit complex because on one hand, uh, we were living in Paris and we admire Paris. You know, when you walk through Paris, there are so many things which are interesting. Uh, and uh, and at the same time, when Corbusier say we want to destroy the street, you know, the street should disappear. Uh, it's uh, the idea was so radical that uh, that it was attractive, although it's a complete nonsense, of course. 
And, uh, uh, and especially when you live in Paris, where the streets are, you know, because of the lack of zoning, you have a, a bakery, a, a, you know, a, a hairdresser, but also an art gallery uh, completely mixed up, uh, you know, you, and, uh, and that's what makes the attraction of Paris, you know, this uh, uh, variety. And so uh, strange, it was, I think, just, uh, I think that uh, people enjoy this anti-establishment, you know, a revolutionary, you know, that's the kind of thing. And I think that the attraction was that the, the establishment was still rather powerful, uh, including at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, but say they were paying lip service to um, to Corbusier because uh, those ideas were very popular among the young. So they will, uh, they will pay some lip service, but continue basically, uh, I would say, not classical, but say, uh, kind of a, an outcome of Art Deco, but in planning pretty much uh, the continuation of uh, the idea of Osman or, or, or Serdar. You know, Serdar is more, more kind of a... Uh, and uh, so th- there was this, uh, this antinomy. You know. And of course, the, the idea of Corbusier, Corbusier never except, uh, except Chandigarh and his uh, possible influence in Brasilia, uh, had never built in a city or in a, he, he didn't have any success in urban planning, really, uh, except in uh, public housing. You know, the government embraced the idea of Corbusier for public housing precisely because uh, the people who live there were not the clients. You know, the, the client, when you build a new city, are the civil servants who are giving you a contract. It is not the people who are going to live in the city. So there is no feedback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, then, and I noticed, uh, having been to Paris, that uh, Parisian suburbs uh, with public housing and, and the expansion of, of yes. Paris metro area is radically different from, from Paris and, and has right, yes, probably yes. has a lot of inspiration in, in Le Corbusier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because the government intervened. I don't think that uh, there is a private... Uh, there is a private uh, sector, res- you know, uh, uh, let's say, response to Corbusier. It's always uh, public because it, you know, in a way, Corbusier was asking for norms to be, you know, uniformity and norms. And that is very attractive for civil servants. You know, when they pass contract, if you have norms, this is uh, this is simple, uh, you know, to administer. Uh, and, and life is not simple. <laughs> and, and what about Hausmann uh, uh, in Paris? Uh, Maybe today, is there a consensus view about what was done in Paris? Uh, and what, what are your views? I, I've seen you um, talking about uh, maybe what, what he did. Uh, you Paris know, could not survive without it, maybe. But. Yes, right, yeah. You know, the, you, in a large city, you need mobility. And uh, before Osman, it's true that uh, Paris was still uh, a medieval city in, in a large uh, area. You know, you, you can... Uh, to have a, a real idea, I mean, there were, there were very few sociological studies, but if you read the novels of Balzac, you know, Balzac described housing, and Balzac wrote in the 1830s, so, you know, about 20, 30 years before Haussmann, and he described a lot of uh, neighborhood or people living in some neighborhood. Uh, and uh, you see that they were really slum, you know, in, in the same sense as uh, the slum of London uh, described by Dickens. Uh, and, uh, but the problem was not housing. The problem was really moving around the city. And I think Osman uh, solved that in a way. Uh, and, but what was interesting, you know, if you compare Osman to, say, Robert Moses, for instance, in New York, 
the advantage of Osman. Osman was a real estate operation. You know, it was not an infrastructure operation. You know, he didn't uh, dig uh, boulevard just to move, you know, like uh, you will move a highway. Uh, it was entirely financed by selling land on both sides of the boulevard to the private sector. So it was borrowing money from the private sector in real estate. And that, I think, is a big difference with, uh, with, with Brasilia, for instance. See, uh, Brasilia was not financed by the real estate. It was financed by, by the Brazilian taxpayer. Uh, not where, where Paris Osman was financed by people who uh, bought land on both sides of the new boulevard. So this had to have value, you know, that, that people will recognize. And that's a big difference between this and, uh, you know, uh, public housing built by, uh, by government in the suburbs. So, so I think that... Uh, you know, the, the charm of Paris, in a way, is that along those boulevards, what was built was entirely demand-driven, although uh, the boulevards themselves was top, were top-down, obviously, the, you know, the, the traffic. But, but what was built on both sides of the boulevard was, uh, was demand-driven. Right, right. And so you, you mentioned Moses, and, and maybe we can, we can move on to your, your period in, in New York, actually. Yes. Um, so you, arri- you say you arrived in 1968. Six- I believe. Yes. January 68, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that was the year Jane Jacobs left New York to move That's to exactly Toronto. it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. She was try you know, she had a trial for rioting or something, and she had I think to pay fine or something. And then she moved to Canada then that year. But say at the time, a fight was very much in the news in New York. Uh, you know, they, there was a newspaper which had disappeared now, which was called the Village Voice. But that's a uh, every liberal, you know, everybody in university or, or even uh, you know educated people who read, you know, on top of the New York Times, the Village Voice, and and uh, there were a number of uh, journalists and uh, also uh, uh, writers who write in the Village Voice. So so uh, the Village Voice were really the voice of Jane Jacobs. At the time, yes, mm-hmm. and their continuation, you know the. So and, you see, and, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, no. So, uh, so yeah, her, her, uh, her, her. Works uh, death and Li- death and life of great American cities is from 1961. Uh, the economy of cities is from 1969. Yes. Um, so she was uh, writing the Village Voice. Uh, was she already an influence within urban planning circles? Um, did you read her books at the time? No, because they were not uh, published yet. I, I read them uh, four or five years later. You know, they, she, I think she wrote her, her book uh, when she moved to Canada, if I remember well. I, I don't remember it, but I read about her and uh, it was more anti, let's say, it was more anti-Moses than, than pro-Jacobs in a way. Uh, you know, the theory of Jane Jacobs, I think I, most people became familiar with them about 10 years later. Uh, the idea, of course, anybody who live in the village was close to the village, uh, you know, Greenwich Village. And the idea that a highway will cross uh, over Washington Park uh, is, you know, in a way, this was not a real estate operation, you see, like Osman. It was an infrastructure operation, you know, to move cars, you know, to move uh, mm-hmm. trucks or cars from, uh, uh, you know, f- let's say from New Jersey to Long Island, basically. That was the idea. So, and uh, the idea that a, a highway like that, I think, could be ju- justified if it was underground because it will give value to a lot of, you know, on both sides, for instance. But say, if you just uh, cut the, the highway in an existing urban fabric, you will have a a decrease in value of real estate. You know, you cut Manhattan into two uh, and 
probably within a kilometer, you know, north and south of the highway, you will have a, uh, you will have a, 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 you know, a semi-dead urban fabric because it, you know, all the streets will be dead hands mm -hmm. in the middle of Manhattan, you know, where in fact, uh, Manhattan is a continuity, you know, they, there's not even, I mean, there are some centers like Greenwich Village or Midtown or Wall Street, but those are linked by a continuity, you know, it, there's not, uh, I, they are not self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, it's a vectors, you know, which, which goes from Wall Street to Harlem. And if you cut a thing, it's, it's like cut, cutting a limb, you know, you, 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 you could, um, you know, some part will become dead. So the, the real cost of such a highway, if it was justified in terms of mobility, uh, would be enormous because you, you had this uh, devaluation of real estate on both sides. My, you know, my estimate would be about a kilometer on both sides, which uh, will lose complete value. And, yeah. uh, and, and uh, Manhattan in itself uh, being cut in two will also lose value. You know, you will have a, a fragmentation also of the labor market there because of the difficulty of uh, moving uh, back and forth. Yeah, we, we've seen in, in many large Brazilian cities, these urban expressways having exactly this effect. Yes. And uh, there are some discussions today and maybe tearing down some of them. So this is very yeah. close to our, our reality. To, to my dismay, I found also that sometimes the BRT, you know, the bus rapid transit, has the same effect. Uh, I found that in Curitiba, in some part of Curitiba, but even more in, uh, in Bogota. You know, if you look at... Uh, let's say, the, the real estate on both sides of the Transmilenio in Bogota, you see that it's, it's always very low value, like, uh, like, you know, it's equivalent of having a highway. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, it, it could be pre maybe solved by some design, you know, urban design thing, which allow more, you know, that's possible. But as mm -hmm. it is, I think it, uh, uh, it is a bit nearly a, a Robert Moses operation. <laughs> although, although it's, you know, uh, a BRT, of course, a branch on, on people all around. So it has a positive side, uh, obviously. Uh, it moves a lot of people and, uh, at a cheap price. But uh, the real estate uh, issue is not solved in the BRT, including in Curitiba. I mean, some part of Curitiba. Yes, many of the BRTs we have here are, are indeed very wide. And uh, to cross it, they build pedestrian walkways that are not very friendly. Right, yeah, yeah. So that could be solved, I suppose, with urban design. You know, I, in my book, I don't treat urban design. It's, the book is long enough like that. But I think it's, a, um, it's an important part, uh, a complementary part, you know. Again, uh, you know, a park like Washington Square is, uh, is a very effective, although it's relatively small, it's four hectares. Very, very effective because it's a good design. But uh, there are parks which are larger, which are not very effective because they are not very accessible and nobody go there. So, so design is really, a, you know, a very, very important part of, uh, uh, you know, of, of planning and land use in general. Definitely. So, so Alan, uh, going back to New York and uh, Jane Jacobs, right? So, so you mentioned uh, your perceptions today about what was the effect of, of these expressways going through the city. Um, so back then in, in the late 1960s, 1970s, were you working uh, at, uh, at City Hall in, in uh, New York? I, my first job was with is uh, Philip Johnson, you know, the architect Philip Johnson. Uh, and it was, uh, it was an incredible experience because it was in the Seagram building, you know, which, uh, you know, built by Miss van der Rohe. It's yes. one of the best skyscrapers in New York, uh, certainly in terms of design. And coming yeah. from Paris, where, you know, I've never been in a building which was higher than eight floor, uh, you know, there, there, there were no skyscrapers in, in France at the time. 
and uh, uh, so and also the the uh, you know the architects in France at the time were. Uh, you know, wanted to give an image of uh, of being bohemian, although they were businessmen like everybody else. But they so they, they dressed like Che Guevara, things like that. And <laughs> and suddenly, I, suddenly I end up with Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson was always dressed in the best Italian suit, and the, and inside the office you had a thing. You know, uh, there was a Giacometti sculpture at the entrance. There was a a, uh, a Picasso uh, tapestry and a Miro tapestry also at the entrance. I mean, it was an incredibly different, but uh, I quickly found it very boring, you know, although it looked very good on my resume as an architect, because uh, there was, again, this guru thing, you know, it was ex exactly the same thing as for Corbusier. Uh, people worship Philip Johnson, uh, and uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, he was an interesting guy. He was very witty, but I don't think he had a clue about uh, about anything, frankly. Uh, and uh, so, he, so it was very frustrating in a way to to to, to work there. So uh, after about five or six months, I think I found some. You know, I I start uh, meeting people, and uh, thanks, by the way, to the American culture, which is much. You know, we were as foreigners, we didn't know anybody, but we were very quickly invited by all sorts of people. And uh, so you establish a network. We, we had, I think, a larger network of France in New York after six months than we had in Paris after five years. And uh, uh, so we, I, I found a job then in the, you know, city planning department. It was a time of uh, Mayor Lindsay. And, uh, you know, it was a time of the Black Panther, uh, Black Power. And uh, I think they were... Uh, I, I guess I, they never told me that, but I guess I was hired because of my French accent. Uh, they, they, they were desperate to, you know, dialogue uh, with uh, with the black community, but they were such a let's say uh, antinomy. They were such a, a, a lack of confidence uh, between, let's say, the white establishment and the black community that they found that I was a nice intermediary in the sense that nobody in Harlem, well, they were not completely sure I was white and uh, they they could not identify me in a box because of my accent. So I, I it was much easier for me to relate there. So after some time, you know, the first I worked in, the, in, you know, next to City Hall at the planning department in the, in downtown. And then after that, we moved to an office in Harlem and then I stayed in Harlem. Only, by the way, trying to sell to the community a completely absurd project. You know, again, another, the, the idea, it was a, a project designed by MIT professors. Uh, the idea was to continue um, you know the Ave Park Avenue into Harlem and uh, by building a uh, you know a vault over the, the railway which is under Park Avenue and then uh, moving poor people into this new building on both sides of Park Avenue. The idea at the time uh, was very common all over the world well that if you built very nice houses, for poor people, then the problem is solved. You know, you eradicate poverty by just building nice housing for them. And the idea, and at the time, uh, Harlem had a lot of problem crime and drug addiction was incredible. You know, basically, uh, you know, the building on both sides of Park Avenue, uh, on, you know, Lexington and uh, Madison, uh, many of the buildings were abandoned and were just used by junkies as, a, you know, as a heroin alley or things like that, you know, the drug alley. So uh, it's not uh, building new houses 
housing there will not solve this problem of crime. And uh, actually, it will have been made worse because uh, to, to communicate between the two parts of Harlem, East Harlem and West Harlem, you will have go to go under this vault, which was even much larger, wider. So you will have a little tunnel. And, uh, you know, tunnels are not very good in area which where full of crimes and drug addicts. Uh, so, uh, Alain, uh, I think by this time, Robert Moses was already stepping out of, of City Hall. But yes. from your... Well, he, he was never in City Hall. He, he was never elected. Huh? Uh, but yeah. he was a very powerful... Yeah. I think the, the word of Robert Carroll, the, the power broker, you know, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly what he was without being... Being elected because he had so many connections with the building industry, uh, the highway industry, and and politician. You know that uh, that well, everything he did were, were not negative. You know the the Palisade, uh, for instance, or the uh, Jones Beach thing like that were, were valid things. Uh, except that uh, the highway to go to Jones Beach had uh, very low bridges uh, to prevent buses from uh, using. You know because he didn't want the rabble of the city to to mess up the beaches. <laughs> Uh, so uh, back then, uh, you mentioned uh, you were you were at City Hall, and and some some of these projects uh, were still, let's say, we could see them today as as uh, a little bit absurd. Yes. Um, and you mentioned that when you were at Chandigarh, you already had a, a let's say a first awakening. Yes. Um, so what what were your thoughts uh, at the time? How was you know how were your views on urban planning evolving, and how did you see the way that they were planning Manhattan at the time? Uh, it was a bit a continuation of uh, from Chandigarh in a way. Uh, when I first worked on this project in Harlem, you know, building this vault and, and uh, using the air ride to build, uh, as you know, there was still my background as architect. An architect liked to build things, uh, and, and especially new things, you know, which look different. So uh, first I thought, hey, this is great. You know, this is a big project I can. And then again, when you live in Harlem and uh, you realize that, uh, you know, going, for instance, under the existing uh, railway, you know, the, the, which uh, crossed Harlem, was a dangerous place and people urinated there. And you say, my project is going to triple uh, the width of this uh, tunnel. And then you realize, gee, uh, I would not like to to cross this, you know, to take, I have to take the subway in Lexington. So I, I will have to go from my office and go in there. And, and suddenly you realize that, you know, that's what looks as an architect was look like a great thing, you know, which will make it into a magazine is a terrible thing when you are on the ground. And that was a continuity. So I started doing things, uh, especially when I was still downtown uh, during my lunch break. I will uh, I will go to a certain place in, uh, you know, in the Wall Street area and I will try to count how, how people were on foot uh, move around the city. You know, when you get out of a subway and you have to go to your office, you have an, an alternative of several routes. Why would you take one route rather than another? So I start following people and noting on a map what they were doing, you know. And uh, and I noted that sometimes they didn't take the, the shorter route uh, and they went into the most attractive route, let's say more diverse, where there were more shops and all that, even if they didn't use the shop. So for me, uh, this pedestrian view of, of urban was very important, you know, the, uh, that, uh, and, and I could see that this was something which normally completely neglected by planners. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, street view of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, for, for instance, say, uh, Philip Johnson uh, built 
a, a library for NYU at uh, Greenwich Village. And uh, Greenwich Village is interesting because there are so many shops and restaurants. And the, the library is completely, you know, it's a blank wall of, uh, you know, uh, red, uh, very beautiful red limestone. But uh, it's kind of a sunlight it become boring, you know, and, and uh, so I'm not saying that in the library you should necessarily have opening for a coffee shop or something. Maybe maybe you should, you know, the the uh, the contact between the private space of a block and the street should be as transparent as possible. You know, it should not be a a a, a fortress. Mm-hmm. You know the. the so I think that that's what's interesting. And in a way, the, you, you mentioned that, uh, yeah, I, I was critical of uh, some of uh, what my colleagues were doing, uh, and including, by the way, Marianne, yes, at the time, we were working also at City Hall, but she was working on, on uh, uh, you know, giving incentive to make plaza like the Sigram building. I, I talk about it in my book, you know, that uh, indeed the, the plaza of the Sigram building is a success, uh, um, you know, urban design success. It's, it's wonderful. But you cannot regulate good design. You know, as, as soon as you regulate it, you, de- you kill the design. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, on 6th Avenue, the idea that uh, all the new uh, skyscraper there uh, will be like the Sigram building with a plaza. So if all the buildings have a plaza, there is no plaza. It's just a wider avenue. And, <laughs> and then the, the, the lawyer take over because uh, the plaza will be private space. That means that if anybody breaks his leg there or, or do anything, uh, the building is responsible for it, not the city, so they can be sued. So the lawyer uh, convinced the architect to make this plaza as uh, hostile as possible, so there will be the least people possible. So you see, but there is a logic to it. You know, it's not uh, uh, just a, a conspiracy or bad will. There is a logic to it, and and you have to understand this logic why things do not succeed just through regulation. Perfect. Yeah, the the, the example is, is of the plaza is, is excellent. Um, um, so fast forward uh, maybe 10, 15 years, uh, Jane Jacobs' books have come out. Uh, yes. her, her work uh, around uh, emer- some emergent order in cities uh, is maybe uh, one of the first to be written in that, in, in that kind of writing. Um, and to me, uh, it, it, it resonates a lot with the work that you have published uh, recently in, in, in a different way. Uh, has, has her work... Uh, did her work influence you at the time? Yes. Um, uh, uh, how did you relatively see later, you know, after New York, uh, we went to Yemen, where we spent three years. So in Yemen, uh, you know, uh, Jane Jacob books were not accessible, although they, they, they were published at the time we were there, but we have no access to that. And after Yemen, uh, so Yemen, you know, in a way, I what Jane Jacobs talk about, I had observed those signs, you know, again, in Chandigarh, that uh, the slum were more alive, you know, that uh, more diversity than the planned city and things like that. But I didn't have a theory behind it. I say, oh, uh, you know, in a way, it was a little anecdotal. Uh, in Yemen, I observe also uh, that the, the density, you know, yeah. At the time, Sana, I mean, the Yemeni cities were com- completely uh, unplanned, you know, in the sense that people were just aggregating things. And my main job in Yemen was really to trace new streets because the city was growing so fast and uh, there was no system really. So I was trying. To, and so I observed a lot of things like, uh, like, for instance, density decrease when you go away from the city. For me, those were just personal observation, idiosyncrasies of cities. 
And it's only uh, when I went to Haiti and I worked with a, uh, an urban economist, I realized that all these things that I had observed were, in fact, urban economists that made the theory. You know, they have also observed them, but measured them and made a theory of them. So, so it confirmed, you know, it, it gave a theoretical background to things that I had observed and, and felt positive. So, and it was the same thing for, for Jane Jacobs. Uh, in particular, her book, the, the Economy of Cities, I think it's in this book where she talked also about, uh, uh, you know, the, the Turkish city built around uh, Obsidian, you know, the, become an Obsidian center. And, and so the jobs accumulate. And then when Obsidian is not more needed, then the city disappears, you know. So again, that confirmed my view of the labor market, you know, a, a city based on the labor market. Uh, and uh, so if you don't diversify, if uh, you, know, you, you start with Obsidian, but if you do not diversify and the city is not particularly be- well located, except for Obsidian, then the city will disappear. And I think that uh, that so was very... So it was, if, if you want a... Uh, I acquired slowly, uh, I would say, I won't call it academic knowledge, but say theoretical knowledge by other people while observing very carefully what was going on on the ground. And, and then I found a convergence uh, with it, you know, and a complete divergence, of course, with uh, the idea of the international style, you know, and or, or even ideas like uh, at the time, the, the big planners were, you know, there was a, a Greek firm called Doxiades uh, who built Islamabad, uh, who built a lot of uh, cities. I don't know if they did anything in Latin America, I forgot. Probably they did. There were a few plans in Brazil. In, in, in Brazil, I believe yeah. in Rio de Janeiro. Ah, yeah, of Doxiades. And, and those were completely, these were really Corbusier type of thing in a certain way, you know, uh, the, the a complete rationality uh, built on, on, on formula uh, without much, uh, you know, observation of how people live in a city. You know, again, the idea that you have a shopping street in the middle of a a neighborhood because it's a it's a closest to all part of, like every neighborhood was completely isolated you know kind of a uh, uh, you know where where a city is a continuity a street is a continuity uh, and so uh, in a way uh, Christopher Alexander I think have a better understanding uh, in theoretical thing than uh, than Doxiadis or again the continuation of this thing of uh, the the units you know the plan unit completely independent and. Uh, you know, self-sufficient. And mm-hmm. the, the sector of Shandiga were like that, you know, they, they were the sectors and uh, which were 800 meter by, uh, if I remember well, by a kilometer or something like that. And uh, and uh, all the the commerce were in a, a little few, uh, a little plaza and few streets in the middle of the, the thing. And uh, where in fact commerce thrive where people are moving, not, uh, you know, it's not. So it's good to be in the center like that for a primary school, but not good for a commerce. Mm-hmm. And so, Alain, uh, looking at this, let's say, timeline of uh, urban utopias and ideas, right? Um, I see, uh, let's see, a, a change in mindset, maybe beginning with garden cities or, or uh, modernism, where urban planners started to try to, let's say, organize city form, right? Yes. Um, and, and since then, maybe Jane Jacobs is the first one to give a different perspective on the, on the problem. Yes. And, uh, but, but still after she published her works, many, uh, many planners tried to uh, use the qualities and, and ideas she describes uh, in her observations um, as, a, as a sort of design manual, right? So yes. trying to regulate uh, mixed income in the same buildings or the age of buildings, right? To give the, the quality 
qualities that that Jacobs has has described by observation and and by yes. of, of a spontaneous outcome right right yeah yeah this is the sad thing about it you know again it's the same story as the Seagram building uh, you know the Seagram building was a good design because it was unique and and there and suddenly as soon as you start making it in a rule then it destroy itself uh, what is important is Jane Jacobs is spontaneity at the same time she speak uh, she didn't speak about spontaneity uh, spontaneous order exactly but something like that and she speaks about uh, randomness you know and and this is what's so difficult to accept for planners randomness that in a way we get back maybe to the idea of uh, 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 you know Hayek or or even uh, you know Adam Smith that uh, individual initiative you know people have knowledge you know again how to run a bakery or you know in or in Berkshire for instance, the case of uh, uh, Adam Smith that that planners do not know where to put a uh, you know how many butcher shops they should be and uh, uh, and where they should be so so to make into a rule that suddenly you observe that in Paris you have, say, a butcher for every 10,000 people and you say, aha, we are going to plan a city where you'll have a butcher. I say butcher, but it could be anything else, you know, a shopping center or something. Uh, then you get it wrong because precisely this thing is evolving depending on the way uh, demand evolves. You know, people maybe at the same time uh, eat less meat or, or get their meat from somewhere else than a butcher. And, uh, and, and so the city should be allowed to, to evolve on that. And so the, I think that's an important contribution of Jane Jacobs is precisely that uh, this render. So you, you should have a structure, you know, after all, the streets of, of Greenwich Village, if that was a model, were already there and they never changed. And she didn't want the street to change. But on these streets, you build things differently depending on the way people evolve. And technology evolve, and I think that's a message which is the most important. You know, uh, so you have a, a spontaneous order which is made of individuals who are pursuing their own uh, interest. Let's say again in, in the Adam Smith uh, theory, and and who have uh, special knowledge of their field, like uh, you know Hayek uh, postulate. And then you have still you absolutely need a structure of uh, which is top down, you know, like Hausmann, uh, on which you you branch that. And the important thing is that the communication between the private and the public, you know, which often very neglected. I I reproach very much uh, urban planner now to spend too much time trying to design what is happening in the private sector, and not enough uh, in uh, the area where they are responsible. For it, and not enough uh, in the you know designing the public space, and all, and especially the relationship between the public and the private space. You know, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, the opening of, of shops, or if you have a garage, uh, how it should open so that you have a still maximum of life on the on the street mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, there are some progress. I see now some progress in the design of sidewalk in New York uh, in some area. So that's very good, especially when you have uh, a pedestrian and crossing, thing like that. I think they have improved it. But I think this is new. This should have been, I think, the, the main concern of urban planners. You know, how you... Uh, I get back also to the question of BRT. I think that uh, BRT suffer from a lack of urban good urban design to link, you know, the... 
the, the, the station of BRT with the rest of the city and the way the city communicates across the BRT line, you know, which, which are just uh, urban design problems. Mm-hmm. And I think these have been grossly neglected. But, uh, you know, if you look at the New York, uh, you know, zoning plan, they, they go into uh, minute details about the height of building, uh, or far they should be from each other, the size of kitchen, uh, the way the bathroom should be connected to the, I mean, and I, I'm not talking here, by the way, about uh, uh, safety regulation, you know, fire or sanitation. This, uh, I leave it to the, you know, the, the customer, you know, the uh, cannot, uh, you know, you, you don't know, you, you have to rely on the fireman to know uh, what is a fireproof building? You can, but anything which is space use, you know, how much floor space you consume and how it is organized, I think the consumer is the best judge uh, to, mm-hmm. to do that. And, and the shopkeeper too, you know, in, in, in New York, for instance, for in many shops, there is a, a minimum and maximum floor space for some reason. I don't know where it comes from, you know, magic numbers mm-hmm. that are coming from. Uh, yes, exactly. So we've seen, I mean, since then, uh, let's say, and uh, since since Jacobs, we've seen a sort of explosion of new utopias, right? Uh, from right. Yes. new urbanism and even uh, transit-oriented development has, let's yes. say, a, a final view on the, on the shape of how right. the city yeah. should, should look like, right? And uh, my question is: is we we I mean we've seen this since. I mean, the Garden City, it's, it's like 120 years already. Yes, right? yes. And, uh, well, Jane Jacobs came along with these new ideas, but uh, her ideas got lost somehow in, yes. in, in the middle of, of, of the process. And uh, we're still not, uh, let's say, in the path of going back to, let's say, classical uh, urban planning. And I, w- I would like to know uh, your views on, on, on why this happens, you know? Uh, sometimes I, I think, uh, is it the fact that we learn urban planning and architecture as the same thing? Is it something else? You know, why do you think these ideas have endured for for so long? Yes, I I think that uh, it's very, very difficult for uh, architects and uh, engineers. And basically, cities are built by engineers and architects and lawyers. Uh, and uh, it's very difficult for them to admit that uh, this spontaneous order, you know, that there are certain things that uh, they may not know and they should leave the maximum flexibility of land use because they want to optimize everything. Uh, and, and it's easier to, for instance, if you want to optimize transport. Uh, I, I remember a case in Indonesia where uh, the, the Japanese, you know, Jika, were planning uh, a, a light rail uh, through Jakarta. And uh, they are very competent, uh, of course, traffic engineers. And they calculated that uh, to, to make this uh, light rail viable, they needed a density along the light rail of, say, I forgot now, but say 250 people per hectare on a on a corridor of, say, uh, one kilometer on both sides of the, the, the light rail. So their idea was not to maximize mobility in Jakarta, was to maximize the viability, the financial viability of their infrastructure. Now, I am not saying that a light rail was not a good idea in Jakarta, but then the objective is a little different. So if the, if the objective is to make the light rail work, not to make it optimum for moving around the city, but to make it 
it work, then of course they need to have this higher density there. And in order to, because there was no demand for this high density yet there, uh, to say the area which are not along the right rail should have a mandatory low density, you know, in order to, which is a bit, by the way, the plan of Curitiba, you know, if you, you know, in a way it's the same. So you try to maximize the efficiency of infrastructure. You decide on the infrastructure first, then you say the people around this infrastructure should be grouped that way so that my infrastructure will be, will be very efficient. And uh, this is not the right way to do things, you know. Uh, in a way, it, it's a part, you know, although a, a transport system is a public sector, but it's the same thing as, you know, when General Motors say, uh, you know, uh, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. It's not necessarily true. <laughs> so what is good for the light rail, you know, the type of land use which is good for the light rail is not necessarily good for Jakarta. Uh, and uh, so we had the, at the same time in Jakarta another example like that, and I think it's, it answered very well your question. You know why we had the project. We, we had that was the World Bank, by the way. We had very competent uh, uh, sewer engineers and drainage engineers, and they look at Jakarta and the soil uh, condition, and they say, you know, in a tropical country like that, we do not need. We we could get away without having a, a traditional sewer system. We could have uh, oxidation ponds which are local and uh, and uh, seepage pit but in order to do that the density would have to be less than 50 people per hectare so they say the planner should plan a city of less than 50 people per hectare and then we will save a lot on the sewer you know you put it in reverse here uh, of course you should have a sewer which is uh, the, the less least expensive possible but to serve the people where they are not uh, to design a city around a sewer system yeah that's that's a great example and the the example you mentioned with the light rail in, in Indonesia, it, I would say it's basically the dominant idea in, in Brazil today. Yes. So the, the latest uh, Sao Paulo uh, master plan is based on this idea. So they allowed uh, higher density, but not, not, not that much FAR of, of four around the main rail and, and BRT lines, but said, okay, outside these areas, we will want lower density. And within the high density lines, we will incentivize smaller units. So yes. we will have more people occupying these, yes. these buildings and we will uh, restrict the amount of parking. So people will yes. also not use the car and yes. they will use the, the rail or the bus system. Right. right yes. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, you know, again, strangely enough, it's, you, you see at, at the end of uh, my, my short uh, article there on the 15-minute city, I, I have a quotation of, uh, uh, of Tocqueville, uh, and, you know, which in a way, when you look at the regulation you describe in Sao Paulo, it's people where they are really concerned about making things work. And then they establish rules so that the thing they design will work, you know, and without really considering, you know, why people in Sao Paulo, some of them will have to use cars, you know, they, uh, maybe a doctor, maybe, maybe a plumber obviously has to use a car, uh, you know, they, and uh, they, they say, well, it would work so well if everybody walked, you know, or every 
library. And, and I think that uh, it's uh, then they put rules, which seems, you know, not too tyrannical in a certain way to say, well, we are going to reduce, uh, you know, parking mandate. Uh, you know. Again, I think parking should not be uh, compulsory. You know, it should be, it's a part of real estate and uh, it should be operated privately because, uh, you know, in many cities, subsidized parking. And in a way, if you you know, like in many cities of the world, you say for a shop of this, you need uh, that many parking lots. You are subsidizing it, you know, because you you, you are obliging people to, to pour that. So I think it should be a part of real estate. And the same way as you should not decide, uh, you know, how many bakery you have in a city, uh, you should not decide how many parking space, but uh, it should be market driven. That means it should not be subsidized if there are people where, you know, then, and then you should certainly be very careful about the urban design aspect, all this parking, private parking lot where they, are, they, are, they will be probably uh, underground, uh, communicate with the city so they don't clog the city or, 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 or be dangerous for pedestrian or thing like that. So, so that's an aspect which should be regulated, the, the urban design and the link between the two. Uh, but again, to me, the urban design is mostly in, uh, in the public area, which are not driven by markets, which are not driven by uh, people preferences. You know, you, you can observe the number of pedestrian in the street and say, well, we need the wider sidewalks, but the market is not going to give you wider sidewalks. There is no mechanism for that, even if there is a high demand. So, so here it has to be top down in a certain way. And, and uh, a lot of attention should be given to that, but much less to, let's say, the size of apartment or thing like that, you know, which I think the people can decide by themselves. And certainly there should not be regulation, uh, you know, uh, to, to say uh, what is the number of apartments of this size or this size. You know, in New York, we have, in fact, the opposite. Huh? You, we have a, uh, for each block, we have a, a number, the maximum number of apartments which can be built in each block, and which is based on, on a number which was invented in 1962, uh, based on densities at the time where the, the average household size was around five people. Now it's uh, 1.3, I think, in Manhattan or something like that. So, so it's a completely arbitrary number, you know, just coming out of nowhere, like, <laughs> like if it was coming from, uh, uh, you know, uh, f- from the sign of the zodiac or something, <laughs> it's it's amazing. It uh, we still have a, a long way to go, and I think your work is a is a, a huge inspiration for us. Um, so, uh, Alan. Uh, I think your your comment on the 15-minute city uh, gives us a, a good a good hint for us to move on to to questions of some of our uh, supporters. So yes. uh, uh, Evandro, he asked he sent a question through through message. He asks if uh, the argument for the 15-minute city uh, couldn't work in fact as a as as a marketing strategy. So maybe not for Paris, where the city has already optimized for 15 minutes where it can, as as you are argued in your article, but maybe. In in Brazil or in United United States, Parisian suburbs that have not reached this level of accessibility or mixed use. So his question is, um, maybe this concept would be a good way to summarize a goal for citizens who are not trained as, as urban planners. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's wonderful to have even a 10-minute city, uh, but that will be, achi- you know, my problem is not the goal. My problem is the way you achieve it. I think that you achieve, uh, let's say, the 10-minute city, the 15-minute city for, let's say, uh, things like food, uh, schools or things like that by removing, regu- you know, by removing regulation which prevent demand from being met. You know, do not forget that uh, the, the 15-minute city depends on 
densities. If you look at all the, the plants around the world, the zoning, the zoning prevents densities. You know, they, you, you never have a, a zoning which, uh, uh, yeah, all the zoning limit densities, either by floor ratio, by a minimum, uh, maximum number of dwelling units per hectare, you know, uh, by setbacks, by all sorts of things. So uh, if you want to increase accessibility, uh, you have to, uh, you know, you have a, this trade-off that, that you have to allow density to meet the demand. I'm not saying again that, you know, there is demand for low density too. You know, there are people who are who enjoy having a backyard and uh, uh, and squirrel in their backyard. And uh, so those people are, are making a trade-off and they know, you know, if they live in an individual house and they prefer it, uh, they know that their bakery or their grocery store uh, will be at uh, 20 minutes, uh, you know, what they can use a bicycle for it if they want. Uh, but say uh, that's uh, that's linked together. You know, you cannot have a 15 minute city without dealing with uh, supply and demand. And uh, so so the pla- my problem with the planners is that they seems to say, well, we, we are going to plan it that way. You, you don't plan it that way. Uh, and it's the same for schools. You know, I was, uh, you know, when I, I read the, the 15 minute city of uh, Moreno there, I uh, I didn't know how, how school were, were built in Paris, frankly. And so I checked in it and there was very interesting. And it seems that, by the way, they are very competent civil servants because the, the schools are state-run. And by the, by the way, not the municipality, but the Ministry of Education. You know, we are a, a central, you know, we the 14th country, we're very centralized. So, uh, and those, uh, those civil servants are very, very responsive. And you find more schools in denser neighborhood of Paris and less school in, or less school in, in neighborhood where people are aging, you know, that they are much less children. So, and they are very responsive and they close them and they open them depending on the change. And that, I think, uh, so I was happily surprised here that they, they have some good, you know, in a way they were doing good planning. And uh, so the 15-minute the city. Now, if you say, for instance, you should have, especially in a dense city, access to public transport uh, within 15 minutes walk, or I would say even 10 minutes walk. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, you know, that's because, but then you should have a program of that. This is not what Moreno is all about. Moreno say, you, we have a way of redesigning the city so you will find your job within 15 minutes. And uh, I believe that if you move to Sao Paulo or to Paris or, or Shanghai, uh, it is not to take a job within 15 minutes. You know, you select the best job in the entire metropolitan area of uh, Sao Paulo and the employer is also looking for selecting the best person in the entire metropolitan. So, uh, you know, uh, you, you may not... Uh, uh, so that, that this trade-off has to be understood. It job is not an indifferent job you know it's not one job you know you 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 have a you have a choice in you should have a choice in many many jobs oh perfect thank you thank you alan um so uh maria uh, asks a question about um uh urban urban transformation in urban fringes so when rural areas uh are subdivided into into lots yes. or maybe uh vacation homes are are transformed into into residential areas uh ex- Uh, excessively uh, and, and intensively occupying areas that were once uh, low density. So I believe you 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 mentioned uh, some of this in your in your book about uh, the the value of land. But maybe you can you can comment about this uh, to answer her question. Yeah, I think that again here uh, you have 
let's say I simplify, we have two cases. Uh, either the state do not intervene at all and you have spontaneous development, but including spontaneous development of streets, you know, and major streets. When it's a small access, you know, access street to a lot, it doesn't matter. But say, uh, this, if you have a new suburbs created in the fringe of the city, one of the most important things is that this new suburb have to be linked to the rest of the city. Uh, you know, because again, the people who are moving in this area are part of the labor market and they are going to have to work somewhere and not necessarily in their neighborhood, probably not in their neighborhood. So the state here has to intervene and it's a top-down thing to integrate those new neighborhoods with a network of transport which link with the entire area of the, uh, you know, of the city. And, you know, this idea that the city could grow with self-contained area, you know, sometimes you have that in, uh, for instance, I've seen that in, in Korea with uh, they, they build new cities and they think those new cities next to Seoul are going to be self-contained, that people who live there will work there. It's not true. You know, they, it's never happened that way. So you have to link, the state has to establish a link with the rest of the city. Now, that's done. The way uh, land is subdivided should be, again, entirely demand-driven. Once you have ensured that you have set apart the, uh, you know, the, the, the space which will be not under the market, which will be devoted to, to main streets, the rest should be demand-driven. And uh, the problem we have, either we have complete failure of the state who do not develop the infrastructure to link those neighborhoods to the rest of the city, and then also, so you have kind of uh, what they call haphazard development, which I don't believe there is nothing really haphazard, but uh, uh, they, uh, you know, you have all sort of building and in a way they respond better to demand because there is no regulation, but then they lack transport. So uh, in the long run, that will not be very good for the city. Or you have then like the way many American city uh, or, or European uh, expand, you have an imposition in advance of one pattern, one type of density, uh, and uh, which is arbitrary, which you, you don't know what will be the demand for, say, uh, three-story walk-up apartment compared to individual houses or townhouses. And I think that you should have a, a type of regulation which will allow uh, you know the the consumer to make a choice uh, to to live in a suburb but live in a townhouse rather than an individual house or on the contrary to live uh, on a lot uh, you know of uh, a quarter of an hectare and uh, uh, let's see what happens you know I, I don't mm -hmm. I don't see why uh, the state sh should uh, decide on the consumption of land in any area of the city uh, the infrastructure you know the Engineers will tell you, ah, but the infrastructure is not there. The job of the state is to provide the infrastructure to support where the people are, not the opposite. With this idea in mind, do you think there is a tension between uh, the the necessity of the state to provide infrastructure to, to all areas and uh, the fact that uh, an individual decision to move into the outskirts of, of an urban area will, let's say, uh, create a necessity, a public necessity, right? Yeah. With a, uh, with a higher cost. I mean, uh, let's say, why, why will somebody go... You know, the state could say, this is our plan for infrastructure. Uh, in the future and uh, we are going to expand you know you will not get a road here before 10 years that's possible but uh, if somebody let's say densify an area which is relatively far away from the 
the border of the mm-hmm. of the urban area. Again, you have to ask why would they do that? You know, in a way, it would be better for them to be closer. That will give more value. So why do they do that? Sometimes they do that because precisely uh, I've seen that a lot in India, by the way. Uh, precisely, there are regulation at the fringe which uh, oblige them to use more land than they wanted, uh, and then they have to jump over. Uh, or sometimes you have a green belt, mm-hmm. and uh, so on the side of the green belt, the land is too expensive because they know it's a green belt; it's the last land left. And in order to have cheaper land, to have cheaper, so you you have to find why the people do that. You know, the idea that people are, are vicious are and are building things in impossible place just to annoy planners is not true. Uh, you know, again, I I'm very often in the sometime in World Bank report you see uh, haphazard development, you know, or, uh, uh, development uh, which is not under control. Uh, I argue with that. Uh, any development which happened as is reason, and you have to find why it is there, and it is to find cheaper land. Why is land so expensive somewhere else? And maybe maybe there are people who are poor, you know, uh, and they they settle there precisely because they cannot afford land. So by preventing them from building them, you don't make them richer. Uh, so how, how do these people uh, want to participate in the labor market of the city? Where do they settle? You know, yeah, I, on, on my yeah. book, I, I give the example, I, if I remember well, of uh, on uh, in Mexico City of uh, informal development on the slope of a volcano, which probably should not be built. I agree, but say you have to find out why will people uh, build there? You know, informal settlement accessible by motorcycle to the to the labor market of Mexico City. Why would they build there? You know, if you prevent them from building them, from building there, and you may have a good reason to do it, you know, I'm not denying it, but then you have to provide an alternative thing. So you, so your reflex should not be to prevent things which you find disturbing, but to say why people move there. Can we provide an alternative at the same price? So you have to monitor the price of this informal settlement and say what, uh, you know, is it that uh, if they move closer to the city, they have to consume much more land? Then you should have closer to the city the possibility of consuming very little land for these people. You know, they. so you have to look at the problem that way. The, you know, in the same way as, uh, you know, when people want to close completely the city to, to cars, you have to look why do why somebody drives through Manhattan. You know, it's not fun to drive through Manhattan. So why would they drive through Manhattan? And and you have to find an alternative. Could some of them be provided with uh, an alternative to that? You see, the, so again, the idea is that a city is made of people and you have to find out what is the best for them rather than design the infrastructure and say the, the people have to adapt to my infrastructure because really, uh, you know, this is uh, this will be optimum if they do. Sorry, uh, it was a long answer. But... No, no problem. Do you have time for a couple of yes, more Yes, I have plenty of time, yes. Great, great. So we have uh, two questions uh, around this, this concept of uh, infrastructure and, and informal housing. Uh, one of them is uh, how to uh, address uh, urban areas that have been consolidated with, let's say, favelas and that uh, the, the urban expansion was, was unplanned. Yes. Uh, how, how, what is the best benchmarks to bring infrastructure to these areas? And another question by uh, Cristiani is uh, what about areas that maybe are um, environmentally sensitive areas? We have in Brazil, for example, houses yeah. above lakes and or, or rivers. Um, do we uh, bring infrastructure to these communities or 
uh, are these cases where a relocation would be would be uh, justified? Yes. So the, the first question, uh, you know, it's possible, you know, so area which are already densified, let's say favelas uh, and, and surrounding area. Uh, I think that one of the main problem here is, again, to link those area with the, with the rest of the city in terms of, uh, you know, first providing basic infrastructure. You know, I, I don't think, by the way, especially in a tropical country or a warm country, uh, that housing is as important as infrastructure. So the best thing you can do, uh, in, in my opinion, in a favela is to uh, to bring infrastructure, you know, clean water and uh, and also the possibility of moving through the favela uh, relatively fast and, and to access uh, public transport if, it, you know, it might not be possible within the favela to provide it, but say uh, at the fringe of the favela. Uh, I think that's, that's the most uh, important thing. So it is possible that in some area you may have to do a Osman uh, operation in order to link again this large area you know I, I can think of that in some area of Mexico City where uh, you have a large area very dense population and uh, most of the streets are about six or eight meters you know no no, no more than six meters I those people are penalized by lacks of access of the, the large labor market of Mexico City so you may have to have a, a Osman operation here and again you will have to do it uh, not by cutting a street, but probably also uh, relocating people on site by doing a real estate operation at the same time, you know, not, not concentrate on the street so that uh, people are relocated on site. Uh, and that will be part of the cost of the street in a way, but you will, you will large, you know, you will create uh, wealth at the same time, you know, you will create a, a fixed capital. So that's a, so it's, it's a bit complicated. I, uh, I'd rather discuss that maybe on a, on a drawing on a map, but uh, uh, you know that's uh, that. I think you know the linkage of a poor area with the labor with the rest of the labor market by fast transport is very very important. Uh, very poor people who cannot afford transport very often are limited to taking job relatively close to where they live, and uh, and then their salary are much lower because of that, and they have much less also possibility. You know, you learn a lot on the job, and they have less possibility of learning on the job. So I think that this access to the rest of the labor market is very important. Now, on the the other question, uh, environmentalists sensitive area. Now, there are two possibilities. Either uh, it's area which will always be flooded or are necessary because of... uh, So, Again, if people settle there, uh, certainly it's not because they they enjoy spoiling the, the environment. They are because it's uh, only cheap land. So can you provide somewhere uh, land which is as cheap and as well located? You know, the, the question is that. If you don't, uh, you expel the people from this area, but you have not solved any problem. You have, you have solved, you know, the area looks better without, uh, without the slime on it. Uh, and maybe uh, ducks will be there or something would be very nice. But what about those people? Those people will be worse off. So you, you have absolutely to find an alternative solution. Don't forget that if they go there, it's not because they are ignorant or anything. It's because they look around the entire city and they find this Although maybe they are flooded all the time, maybe they they are lot uh, full of mosquitoes and things like that, not very comfortable. But they found that 
from their point of view, this is the best place in the city. So can you find for people like that with this income, something which is equivalent and which is not in a sensitive area? So that's the thing. Now, in some area, I, I remember a case in India where there was a large slum on an area which was regularly flooded. And again, the people knew it was flooded, but... Uh, because it was flooded, the land was cheap, and that's why they settled there. And it was relatively close. You know, they have a good access to the city center, so this area. So the city first decided to remove them and uh, put them somewhere far away uh, from the city, where, in fact, they were relatively close. And then we found, you know, if you had a good engineer, we found that by building a bond around this area, in fact, it would be much cheaper to prevent this area from flooding uh, without relocating people. And and bringing, you know, uh, clean water and uh, a system to remove garbage in this area and things like that. So, so that was uh, also done quite a number of times in Indonesia, you know, in the Kampung uh, project that I, I speak about. So again, here you should have a, a dual, you know, see if the, uh, let's say, some civil work uh, will not solve the problem of flooding, for instance, uh, if uh, the area is not otherwise sensitive. But uh, some area, you know, should stay uh, uh, wet, you know, say wetland or thing like that. That I have no problem with that, obviously. Uh, or say uh, the the slope of the volcano around Mexico City uh, probably should not be built because of the uh, you know the, the difficulty, you know, the the, the drainage uh, problem, you know, that it causes and thing like that. So so here you have to, but you know, always think, you know, the the problem sometimes when you address this this uh, is to to beautify the area and kick the people out, and these people are not going to disappear. They are not going to go back to their village. They are going to go somewhere else in the city and create another problem. So unless you address the problem of the people and in particular affordability, you know, land affordability and access to job, you are not going to solve the problem. Oh, uh, amazing, amazing answer. Thank you, Alain. Uh, I think we have uh, a couple of last uh, other questions. So, and uh, Andre Andrea uh, says that there is a 2004 paper in which you explain that the city of Bangalore restricted FAR in central areas because they believed it would be too costly to build infrastructure large enough to accommodate a large population. And uh, of course, this caused the population to spread outward, which increased demand for, for infrastructure. Uh, do you know of any cities where this density restriction because of financial concerns would make sense because, uh, and he, he believes that many people in Brazil argue against density, saying that the cost of improving infrastructure would be too high. Look, it's very simple. Uh, look at the cost of land and look at the cost of infrastructure. Uh, and very often to save, say, $10 million in infrastructure, you blow up a, uh, you know, $100 million of uh, real estate. Uh, you know, if you, uh, so there could be there could be situation where uh, infrastructure in some area is so expensive because I don't know mud maybe or uh, earthquake or something. But my experience is always that uh, uh, infrastructure is uh, you know when there is demand. By the way, uh, you know <laughs> the problem is that sometimes planners uh, build infrastructure in the middle of nowhere where there is no demand. Then the infrastructure become indeed very expensive uh, because there is no demand for it. But say if you are in a downtown area and or, or say suburban area where there is a lot of demand for housing or, or whatever or office building uh, my experience is that it's always cheaper to to bring pipes there or you know to increase the sewer system thing like that but, don't forget you know look at uh, cities like Manhattan or, 
or, or, or Paris, or you know, they had no infrastructure. The infrastructure was built little by little. You know, if uh, if Manhattan had decided, gee, you know, in in the 19th century they had the, there was no sewer, by the way. They, uh, so uh, we we don't want to spend on infrastructure. The city should expand, or, or you should move to Baltimore or something like that. It doesn't make sense. You know, you you have to adapt. The problem, of course, is that very often you do not have mechanism to recover the cost of infrastructure. So you you have a a, a municipal budget for sewers and uh, you have no mechanism to get it back. Uh, And it's possible that if you increase density, you have have something like an impact fee or something which will pay for the additional infrastructure. Or you have the the system that you have in, uh, uh, you know, in Texas where you have bonds, you know, which are repaid by property tax in the in the long run. but here you need a, a relatively sophisticated uh, uh, financial system, of course, and to do that. So I think uh, uh, it's not that infrastructure is too costly when you want to when there is demand for higher. It's just that you have no mechanism to recover the cost of infrastructure. You know, it comes from one pocket, and and you where the money is going in another pocket, and so you, you don't do it. But uh, I I don't uh, I cannot imagine a case where there is a high demand for. Um, you know, for for infrastructure, uh, where uh, you know the price of real estate will not largely compensate uh, the cost of infrastructure. Helen, your your answer was was uh, on point. As I think our our last question was exactly on the, on this topic. Um, so Arthur asks about uh, Latin American cities with with budget constraints and how could infrastructure be provided. Um, you 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 gave us uh, some some light on it already. Uh, what do you think about uh, selling building rights? Um, other financial me- mechanism cities could use? Yes. Uh, let's say the, the problem, of course, when it's a government will sell it, uh, again, how to establish a price which correspond, which would clear the market, you know, because you mm-hmm. couldn't price it in such a way that doesn't clear the market, then then nothing happened. Uh, but I think that now, if we talk about Brazil, uh, there is a financial uh, system in, in Brazil, which is deep enough to to be able to finance uh, cities. You know, cities, I'm sure cities are able to issue bonds and uh, most cities. And probably this is the best way to finance. If you have, of course, that means that you have a, a property tax or some income uh, which is, you know, which will uh, guarantee the bonds, of course, you know, will, uh, on which the bonds will be based. So again, I'm not really an expert on, on municipal finance, frankly, but uh, it is true that, uh, uh, you know, the financing of infrastructure uh, is uh, is a very important thing. And very often cities uh, are, are broke, where in fact, when you look at the price of real estate in the city, you don't have the feeling that people are broke. After all, if they pay this amount for real estate, they, there is money circulating there. And uh, there is no doubt that they should pay for, for infrastructure. So uh, I think that one example, again, I'm not an expert on that, but one example that I found very convincing is what is used in Texas. I think it's called uh, MUD, you know, municipal uh, urban uh, district. And it's uh, it's a way of uh, you know issuing bonds which are, which do not necessarily cover a specific you know it can go even over several municipalities but the bond cover the infrastructure so when you you are in a suburban area uh, you have a, a a district you know which is 
the district is specific to the infrastructure, which may go across several, uh, you know, suburban boundaries. And uh, uh, and this seems to work very well. And that explains in large part why, uh, you know, housing in general in, in Texas is much cheaper than in other parts of the United States, is that uh, because of those bonds, you are able to develop enough infrastructure to, uh, to and, and by the way, they also, uh, in te- you know, in, in a city like Houston, they revise periodically also now they, uh, the land use so that they, they increase sometimes if they, they feel there is a demand mm-hmm. for smaller apartment or smaller lot, they, they are able to do that. Our uh, One of our supporters, uh, Eric, just uh, messaged us saying that municipalities are restricted from issuing bonds uh, in uh, Brazil. Oh, <laughs> really? Ah, yes. Unfortunately. Yes. Uh, because, uh, because the states do not uh, think that they are, they are able to, to repay them, right? Maybe, maybe. Yes, yes. But, so uh, I, so I, maybe I, there are other mechanisms than bonds, uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, I, I, think, I think that uh, when cities are able to uh, you know, to issue bonds, and they know they will not be bailed out uh, by the state. I think mm-hmm. that might be the best, but maybe I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not an expert on municipal yeah. finance. The, there, there is an instrument in Brazil which I find in- interesting that uh, cities can uh, specify a, an urban area and yes. they sell uh, building rights uh, that will. Uh, and with the proceeds, they will invest in that urban area. And the price is not set nominally by City Hall. It's a, it's an auction. Yes. And these building right titles are sold in the open market. So that's that's an interesting way yeah. to avoid the, the price um, uh, definition. Right, yeah. That's that's interesting. So, so uh, and I suppose that in those areas, then they establish also standards of uh, urbanization, right? Because, yes, uh, yes. Because the building right are based on the private part of, of, yes. uh, of the development, obviously. Yes, yeah. it's a bit like what Hong Kong used to do. I'm not so sure now that in the last few years uh, if they keep doing it, but uh, that's Hong Kong used to do, you know, in the in the past to develop. And that's why you had suburbs in Hong Kong of very high densities because uh, that's what people were ready to pay uh, in order to get as close as possible to to, London, to, to the center of Hong Kong and to, to public transport. Sport, you know, because uh, with the density of Hong Kong, uh, you know, the, the Hong Kong can function only if about 80% of people use public transport. You know, they stay about 500, 600 people per hectare. I mean, you, you cannot. Uh, so that, yes, that's, yeah. that's a solution. Uh, I had a, a case, uh, strangely enough, in Iran. You know, I work in Iran uh, in the, what, in the, uh, you know, after the, the revolution. And uh, there was a mayor of Tehran who was desperate for money and to, to respond again to, to densities. And, and uh, he did exactly that. He, he auctioned uh, the right to, to build and he financed infrastructure like that. Uh, and uh, the central government was, uh, was critical of it. But uh, I looked at the outcome there when I went there and uh, I thought it was, you know, it's a little primitive let's say, but it worked. It, it produced an enormous amount of floor space, which was obviously affordable because it was all private and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was, you know, people are always asking for a compact city. Uh, it created a compact city, you know, by <laughs> itself without having to regulate it or, or thing like that. Uh, and uh, the fact that it was auctioned, you know, if it was uh, if it was set by the government, you will always suspect that there would be an area where there is no demand and they put a very high price. But here it was obviously 
obviously demand-driven. So again, being demand-driven is very important. Yeah, no, I, I'm personally surprised about, uh, about these mechanisms because with, with all of the density restrictions, uh, most big cities are sitting on a pile of cash, right? They, yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. They, they yeah. could easily finance themselves in, in many different yeah. ways. But, you uh, know, uh, a, a guy like Trump, uh, the way he made some of the money was to buy uh, land in, in, in New York, in Manhattan, which was zoned for industrial or something like that. There's still industrial land in Manhattan. And they thought, you know, you would be crazy to create an industry in Manhattan. You know, that. So, so this land has very little value. It's used usually for storage. And if you know how to change it, so you buy it if you know to change this so it has a potential value of hundreds of millions of dollars but you buy it for 50 million dollars and you wait you know it takes maybe 10 years with a very expensive lawyer to change the zoning you know if you know without uh, i'm not implying corruption even you know just uh, a process you know the the, the board president uh, you know who is um, or, you know the community whatever after 10 years suddenly it becomes a commercial or residential and uh, you have made a bundle uh, b- yeah, but okay. it all goes to the developer uh, and to the lawyers because it's you have to have very skilled lawyers to do that uh, and uh, you know, it's uh, but the city was uh, sitting on it and not doing anything. With it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe cities have a and lot again, to learn with you know, real estate development. Why do, why do New York maintain manufacturing in in Manhattan? You know, where there is no demand for manufacturing. It's again, people. Some people believe that manufacturing job could come back to Manhattan, and that you will have. So the the union, a number of people believe. Well, if we maintain them, then we will have good jobs uh, in uh, manufacturing uh, uh, instead of having only service. So, so it's a myth. I mean, it will not happen. Uh, and uh, it just, uh, you know, transfer money from the city to uh, to uh, developers and lawyers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I apologize yeah, for the lawyers and the assistants. Yeah, I have great respect <laughs> for zoning lawyers. But, uh, <laughs> oh, that that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Alan, uh, we we uh, passed passed away from the time uh, we yes. had, we had uh, scheduled, but it was a it was a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, Same here, thank you. We, we are we're done with questions for now, but I I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, it's always an, an honor to connect with you, and uh, we have many many big fans of your work here uh, with us. So thank you. Neste episódio, conversamos com Alain Bertot. Na descrição desse episódio, você encontra o link para as referências citadas ao longo da conversa. E se você gostou desse conteúdo e é um amante de cidades, seja apoiador do Caos Planejado. Visite caosplanejado.com para conferir centenas de artigos e todo o conteúdo que produzimos e faça uma doação para apoiar o nosso trabalho, para nos ajudar a levar essa conversa a um número cada vez maior de pessoas. Com doações a partir de R$ 25,00 por mês, você participa ao vivo das gravações do podcast, tem acesso ao nosso grupo exclusivo no WhatsApp, a nossa biblioteca virtual com centenas de artigos e muitas outras vantagens. A nossa edição de som é feita pelo Cristiano Botafogo. Obrigado por ouvir o podcast Caos Planejado e espero vocês no próximo episódio. Esse episódio é oferecido pela Trashin, que promove a economia circular através de ações reais de sustentabilidade, como gestão de resíduos, projetos de logística reversa e transformação de materiais em produtos novos e reciclados. A Trashin atua em todo o Brasil com clientes como Havaianas, P&G, Movida e Parque Ibirapuera. Acesse o site trashin.com.br e saiba mais.